It's time for Making Money with the financial coach, Ron Hebert. I'm Gord Whitehead, and we've talked about, Ron, uh, about mutual funds and ETFs and stocks and how to find an advisor. So now we're going to flesh things out a little bit this time around. And we'll also ask a, answer a question that has been sent to us that, uh, well, it's a pretty broad-based question. I think we can spend a little bit of time on it. But let's start, let's start with ETFs, exchange-traded funds. We explained in a previous episode what they are, how they work. So if somebody, what are, what are ETFs, what type of investor are they perfect for? Well, we're going to talk about how to build a, a winning ETF portfolio and ETFs are perfect for individuals that have time constraints. If you're a busy person and you've got kids going to music lessons and you're coaching hockey and all these things, it really is hard to scrape out, really to look after your own money if you're in stocks and bonds. You probably need at least four or five hours a week to do it effectively. And many people just don't have the time. So if you want to do it yourself and you don't want to delegate the management of your money to someone else, then you need something that's really, really time efficient, but should be able to give you good returns. And so we have some ideas for you today, which we think will allow you to do just that. So we should, should we be looking to, to base this money here in Canada, down in the States, in Asia, in the European markets, should we be looking to spread it out? Well, as we talked about before, Canada is such a small percentage of the global market. And a lot of the companies in this country are very insular. They look inward or maybe they look to the U.S. for some sales. But when you've got 97% of the world's economy taking place outside our borders, you want to expand your horizon to take advantage of the best opportunities in the most places you can possibly look. So my recommendation would be to, for example, if you're going to have an exchange trade fund portfolio, is you need maybe five. That's really all you need. And you can break it down in equities where you put some in Canada, some in the U.S., and some internationally. Okay, so you're broadening your base. Now, a broad-based fixed income ETF in the Canadian and international markets, is that a key? Yeah, so you have Canadian and bonds and fixed income opportunities to look at. And then you look beyond Canada to, to North America, because here again, you know, our bond market, I think, is 3 or 4% of the world's total. So there's just so many more opportunities beyond that. And so... The examples I'm giving today are if you're a classic investor where you have maybe 60% of your money in equities or stocks, you have 40% of your money in fixed income. This would mean that you put 20% in a Canadian ETF, 20% in a U.S. ETF, 20% in an international equity ETF, and then on the fixed income side, put 20% in Canada and 20% internationally, so you've got 60% stocks, 40% fixed income, and over the long term, that 60-40 portfolio has worked out to give you really the best returns with the least risk. Actually, 60-40 has returned just a, a little bit less than having 100% in the market, but your volatility and your risk are way, way less. So we're just using a classic 60-40 split 
with uh, five individual ETFs. So is it a good idea to look for big ETFs, big funds that, that are likely to stand the test of time? Yeah, the last thing you want is buying an ETF and then all of a sudden, because there isn't enough money in it, it's discontinued. So you have to sell it and buy something else. Or you have a company that finds out after a couple of years they just can't get traction, so they get bought out by another ETF provider. And of course, all those funds are always absorbed into a bigger one. And often, the fund that you're moved into doesn't exactly line up with the goals and objectives you had in mind for that ETF in the first place. So you're better off going with a big provider that is going to be able to stand the test of time. And five, 10 years from now, you've got a high degree of certainty they're still going to be around. Hedging's a big thing in this too, isn't it? When you get into currencies, I mean, good Lord, the way that they've been whipsawing back and forth around the world uh, can make your head spin. You know, you've seen the Canadian dollar over the last 30 years be as low as about 62 cents and as high as a dollar ten, And so that swing alone can take away years and years of performance. So if you're investing internationally, unless our dollar is criminally cheap against other currencies. So when our dollar is criminally cheap and you're investing in other currencies and you know you, you think our currency's got a good chance of going up and that one going down, well that kind of hurts you if you if you hedge. But if you don't hedge when our currency is really weak, that's the time to buy unhedged funds because you'll take advantage of when our currency is weak, that's when you want to hedge because if our currency goes up and their currency goes down, that's where you get yourself in trouble. The other way around is when, when you don't want to hedge. Okay. All right. So ETFs, a lot of, you know, not really complicated issues here, but one that you should pay attention to. So put 20% in each and once a year rebalance. What, yeah. What does rebalance mean? You just take a look at what you have and maybe try to move some things around and, and get a better performance? Essentially what you're doing is you're buying things that are cheap. So let's say you had five funds, three, three equity funds and two fixed income funds. And the equity funds had a really bad year. So let's say they were down 20-some percent. At the end of the year, the percentage that you have in equity is going to be lower than the percentage you have in fixed, especially if you had a guideline to have 20% in each fund. So you take the ones that have done well, take some money out of those and rebalance that money into the ones that haven't done so well. And vice versa, if your equity funds have done really well and your fixed income hasn't, it's a time to take some out of the equity funds and rebalance them into the ones that haven't done so well so that at the end of the year, you're looking at those five funds again and you got 20% in each. So it's really, it's just simple math. It's just taking a look at the basket and seeing what's there and deciding if that basket's not right, maybe you should put it in that basket. Exactly. But what most people don't have the discipline to do, they don't have the discipline to sell when things are high and buy when things are low. And this might sound like a mechanical process, but it does give you the discipline to do just that because when things aren't performing, you're very reluctant to put more money into it. Whereas by doing this, you just follow the formula. Well, I'll take some things out of the th stuff that's done well, put it into things that haven't done so well, and so you're buying cheap. 
Okay, so so exchange traded funds is what we're talking about, and you mentioned that the way that you think is a, is a good way to go is to have, for instance, five funds. Now we're not giving ringing endorsements here. There are lots of companies out there that you can look at. You talk to your financial advisor, see what fits right for you. But just as an example, Ron, let's throw a couple of names out there, and this is that you know this is what you're talking about. This is how you would line up this model. Exactly. When I taught investment classes for years, we would give them an example of an ETF or a mutual fund or a stock portfolio and then tell them, look, why don't you go out and build your own and bring it back to class and we'll discuss it. But here's an example of how you do it and that's exactly what this is. So for a five ETF portfolio, if you were going to put 20% in each fund and you were going to have 40% fixed income, 60% stock, and here again, this is a hypothetical portfolio, but I think all you need is five different ETFs, especially if you're time constrained and you want to keep the administration of this down to the barest minimum. Uh, five ETF portfolio should do just fine for you. And an example would be to buy the PIMCO Monthly Income Fund, symbol is PMIF. That would give you global fixed income for Canadian fixed income, the iShares Corporate Canadian Bond ETF, XCB, would be a good example. In Canadian equity, uh, the iShares Select Canadian Dividend ETF, which buys uh, dividend paying and dividend growing stocks in Canada. The symbol is XDV. For the U.S., I like internet or I like the iShares uh, U.S. Dividend Growers. And that one is the symbol is trades on Toronto. It's cud, like the cud of a cow. And then for international stocks, I like the iShares International Dividend ETF. That'd be a good example of one. Symbol is IDV, and it trades on the U.S. market. So there you got five funds. You buy them, put some money in. At the end of the year, you can rebalance, or let's say you're putting more money in quarterly. What you do is, let's say you've got 2500 or three grand every quarter to put in funds. You look at the ones that have underperformed the market and that's where you put your money. So that's just another way to balance. And you can do this by literally quarterly when you make your deposits into the account or annually when you rebalance. That's generally about the only time you really have to pay a lot of attention to this stuff. And it should be able to give you reasonable returns at very, very low management fees and also not a large input of your time. It's kind of dollar cost averaging in a modified manner, is it? Exactly. Okay. All right. So that's it on ETFs, exchange-traded funds. One idea for you to pursue in your investment strategy. Now, as we've mentioned, we, we do invite your inquiries here on Making Money, and you can reach us through the CFCW website, and some people have reached out to us. We got one here from, uh, I don't have the name, but pardon me, Ken. Um, well, visiting Illinois recently, I read that the public pension obligations of the state exceed 160% of total tax revenues. I'd be interested in your take on how widespread this condition is, and the potential impact defaults might have on the financial markets? That's a really loaded question because this is, this is a disease right now, basically, isn't it? Exactly. And there's, there's two issues here. There's social promises. And so governments typically to get reelected 
they make promises to give you virtually everything. And, and I looked up a quote here, which I think you'll be surprised when it was actually given, but it's a quote by a politician. It says, the budget shall be balanced, the treasury shall be filled, public debt shall be reduced, the arrogance of officialdom shall be tempered and controlled, and the assistance to foreign lands should be curtailed, lest Rome become bankrupt. This was actually spoken or written by Cicero in 55 BC. So it's well over 2,000 years ago. And so here you've got a politician uh, promising the world that everything's going to be cleaned up. Look to me, I'm the man, I'll fix everything. And for 2,000 years, we've had virtually during election time, we have these same types of promises. And frankly, if you look on the fulfillment side, eh, not so much. Record hasn't worked out so well. I saw a, a graph uh, just a couple of days ago about here in Canada, the taxpayers now pump more than $40 billion a year into the pension plans for 2.8 million government workers. Uh, I think we all know people or have friends or acquaintances that have been, you know, civil servants, and they're looked after very handsomely when they retire, and, and I guess more power to them. But you have to ask about the sustainability of this. Especially in the, in the States, or, or Greece is a good example, where a hairdresser could retire and get the pension of equivalent of about sixty dollars to $100,000 a year. Some of this just gets unrealistic, and you reach a point, especially with these social promises, where governments aren't going to be able to fulfillment, fill them because they just don't have the tax base. And if you don't have the tax base to fulfill your promises, then you have two other outcomes. Number one, you borrow. And rising debt, I mean, the United States now has $70 trillion if you take municipal debt, state debt, corporate debt, individual debt. It's staggering how much debt is out there. And eventually you reach the point where the tax base just can't support all the increased taxes and there's so many demands on the money that tax base isn't big enough to be able to compensate for that. So then the politicians do what politicians do best. They print. That leads to inflation and debasement of your currency, and you see that cycle over and over again. I mean, outstanding examples of that, Zimbabwe, Venezuela, Greece, they're all essentially running in the same direction. Greece doesn't have control over the ability to, to move its uh, currency up and down, but they certainly have uh, control over the other factors. And, and when you do that, frankly, you debase your economy and you debase the living standards of all the people that live in it. So is it a great idea to make promises you can't keep and borrowing that you can't sustain? The answer is no. Well, you had a good analogy when we were just getting set to do this one. You talked about, you know, when you borrow and you start out with a dollar. Like you, when you first start borrowing, it's okay because you can manage it. Yeah, it's like taking your first shot of some kind of illicit drug. You get a buzz off of it. Well, with each increased injection, you've got to put more in yourself to get the same reaction. Well, years ago, if you put a dollar, you borrowed a dollar and put that into the economy. Generally, you were getting $3 to $4 worth of economic activity. Are we talking back like New Deal time? Is yeah, that New yeah. Deal time all the way up into the 60s. But what happened is that guys, governments got more and more addicted 
to getting that high by borrowing, the effect of that borrowing has gone down dramatically. And in the last few years, if you put a dollar worth of borrowing and put it into the economy, you're getting about 50 cents worth of economic activity, which, I mean, you do the math. You put a dollar in and get 50 cents out. The math doesn't work anymore. So this is very, very quickly coming to an end, not just in the United States and Canada, but in South America, Europe, and in Asia as well, where most countries have become addicted to pumping money into the economy and borrowing to juice it up and get it going, especially before elections. And we're rapidly reaching the point where that isn't working anymore. Well, and, and I, I don't think your political stripe really enters the equation here. I don't think you have to be either left or right to look at the recent developments that are being proposed as an example with the Green New Deal that has been you know put forward down in the United States. And, and the Congressional Budget Office came out with their estimate. What was it, $93 trillion? <laughs> and you go, What? How are you ever going to – and you could talk about raising the taxes on the rich and taking 70% or whatever the number. I don't think the math works. I'm no mathematical genius, but I just don't see how you ever balance that out. That particular green agenda was put out by a woman who, before the elections, I believe was a bartender in New York. Maybe she knew how to mix a good Manhattan, a good Manhattan, but you can just tell from the input she's gotten that there is no concept there whatsoever on how to do things in a sustainable and manageable way. And of course, nobody's saying that you have to throw out concepts like looking after the environment, dealing with the sick, and making the economy a fair place where everybody gets a fair shake. What you're talking about is just uncontrolled, wild spending where there is not enough resources in the entire galaxy to take care of, of everybody's wish list. So if you have unconstrained spending, it leads to an unconstrained disaster. It's just that simple. And one final note on this regard is, is what's been going on here in our country. You know, we've had burgeoning debt over the last three years uh, federally. And as you point out, you know, we haven't been in recession. We, we're actually, economies supposedly been doing pretty well. What happens when, you know, the stuff hits the fan? Canada's been lucky because we've had literally 20 to 30 years of fiscally responsible governments on both sides of the equation. You know, the liberals and the conservatives have both been very, very conservative in their fiscal management. They've been good stewards of the economy. Both parties have. And it's just been the last few years where deficits don't matter anymore and you spend money in good markets and bad. And the point is, is if you're spending in good, how much money are you going to have available that when things get worse that you can go in and, you know, the old Keynesian philosophy is that when business is no longer buoyant because the economy's in recession, the government throws its shoulder in, borrows money, and that's when you do all the big infrastructure projects because, frankly, things are cheap. So the time to actually do those projects is in recessions when, frankly, everybody's hungry and you can cut good deals to build them versus a government that's going out and spending at the top of markets 
and paying top dollar for things, you know, you wonder why are they doing that when, frankly, they should be saving and waiting for the opportunity to do the best public good with the money we have available. I think we'd all be pretty good at spending money we don't have. <laughs> I don't think that's really, that doesn't take a genius to do no, that. No, exactly. I mean, <laughs> frankly, the last time I spent money I didn't have was when I went and sat on Santa Claus's knee when I was about six years old. <laughs> and I remember Santa Claus saying, because I had a list of about 30 things, and he cut me off after about uh, three of them. And, of course, there were, I could. he wanted to get out of there and had better things to do. And the last thing he wanted was a kid who listed off his 25 or 30 things that he wanted. And, you know, I mean, frankly, government is not Santa Claus. They can't just pull out a magic wand and give you everything that you want. Well, there you go. A little bit of uh, politicizing and a little bit of, well, practical information. It's uh, very interesting times, very frightening times, I think, as far as debt loads are concerned. If you have a question, and hopefully we addressed your inquiry there, Ken, about that, uh, you know, 160% of total revenues, public pension obligations, they're going to have a problem, and uh, the day of reckoning is going to come. Yes, and that's why I keep my portfolio conservative. And I look at high-quality companies that I can invest in. If I'm buying bonds, I look for governments that have their debt under control. Or if I'm buying corporate debt, I'm looking for corporations that have their debt under control. Because, frankly, when things start to unravel, it's like walking into an alley in the dark. You don't know when somebody's going to come out of the shadows and whack you across the head with a blackjack. And then it's too late. Uh, you want to prepare ahead of time. So... Being conservative, especially when we're going into more tenuous times, is never a bad strategy. So if you have a question, you can reach us through the eight if the 840CFCW. It's at cfcw.com, and you can catch Ron's Money Minutes twice daily on CFCW. Thanks for joining us. It's Making Money with the financial coach, Ron Hebert. I'm Gord Whitehead. Thanks for listening.